these people who do what has been identified as extreme sports, extreme sports, we're not talking about regular sports, we're talking about extreme sports. The word extreme, by the way, means, by definition, immoderate, uncompromising, fanatical methods or behavior. Extreme. So these extreme sports people, they do just unbelievable things that the normal person would never even contemplate doing. For instance, it's not just that they run, it's that they run incredibly and unbelievably long distances. It's not just enough to go jogging around the block, you know. These people are running, but they now, you know, a marathon is 26 miles, which a little over 26 miles, which is really quite amazing. But these people are not content with a marathon. They do ultra marathons, 50 or more miles. Extreme, extreme. A normal person would never do that. Or motorcycles. Have you seen some of these guys riding these motorcycles? It is unbelievable. They they take their motorcycles and they go off of a of a uh, ramp or a jump, and then while they're in the air, they're turning cartwheels and doing all sorts of things. It's absolutely unbelievable. The very idea that a people that a person could even imagine to do such a thing on a motorcycle is it, it's it's just unbelievable. It's crazy. It's not normal. It's extreme. Or what about this? Here's a picture. Uh, these guys who do this rock climbing. That picture may not come across. They, there's a guy here, and he's climbing up a sheer rock face. I'll tell you, it makes my stomach hurt to even look at a picture like that. <laughs> Why would people think to do that? That's so extreme. Why? Normal people just don't do things like We keep our feet firmly on the ground. These extreme people, uh, they go way above and beyond. Today we want to talk about some people who took things to extremes, but we're not talking about sports this morning. We want to talk about people who took their Christianity to the extreme. We want to talk about some extreme Christians. In fact, we want to talk about the very first Christians. We want to go back to the book of Acts, and a lot of what we'll be talking about is in the reading that Jack read for us a few minutes ago from Acts chapter 2 and and just some immediately following chapters. We want to see what these early Christians did. And, And I think we'll clearly identify that they were extreme in their religious practice. But we should stress, before we even begin to talk about some of the particulars of their activities, that this was what God wanted. This was as God would have it, because we know that the inspired apostles were present with them. And so their activities, though extreme, were like God wanted them to be, under the guidance of those inspired apostles. We want to talk about those first Christians and their extreme approach to their religion. Before we go further into that discussion, we stop for just a minute to thank you for being present. We're glad that you're here and glad that you are uh, willing to participate with us in this time of devotion to God and study of His Word and worship and uh, toward Him. We hope that all things that we do, as was already prayed, will be pleasing in His sight. We also pray that they will be beneficial to all of us. We thank you for being here and for any and all who are visiting with us. Thanks for coming. Please come again whenever that you can. Let's talk about these first Christians who I think would be fairly identified as being extreme and their religious practice. One of the things they did is that, by the world's estimation, is they went to church too much. They just went to church too much. In that reading that Jack read earlier from chapter 2 of Acts, beginning verse 42, 
they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers and continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Notice that their religion involved daily practice. They were daily doing things that, that were related to their religion. Daily they did so. Now, I think it's interesting that before it tells us that they were doing these things on a daily basis, it mentions them being steadfast, continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And so, if that word steadfast means anything at all, then we're not surprised to see them doing daily practices of their religion. In fact, if it said that they were steadfast in following the apostles' doctrine, but then down here it says, and occasionally they came together. Uh, maybe once a month they met together, or a couple times a month uh, they assembled together. That, that wouldn't seem to be harmonious. The word steadfast, when we read steadfastly of following the Apostles' Doctrine, then the word continuing daily meshes with that. That seems to make sense, doesn't it? It wouldn't make sense if it was just once in a while they were meeting together. The New American Standard Version of that same passage says that they were continuing, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers, day by day continuing with one mind in the temple. Again, notice the notion of continually and day by day continuing. That's what those first Christians did. Now, contrast that approach to religion. All we're talking about is how often did they come together? How often did they, as we would say, how often did they go to church? Uh, I'm using that expression accommodatively, of course. How often did they do it? Well, all the time. Every day, right? Contrast them to some people who think that going to church once or twice a year is sufficient. That doesn't match up at all, does it? Those people who think maybe we'll go to church on Easter Sunday and sometime around Christmas we'll go to church. That certainly wouldn't be like those first Christians, would it? They were extreme in continuing daily in the apostles' doctrine and teaching. Now, admittedly, most people who identify themselves as Christians go more than once or twice a year. But if you suggested the idea that you ought to go every week to worship God, they would probably push back a little. Especially they would push back if they had some other activity that was demanding their attention if they were going to go on vacation, or if they had some other interest that they wanted to pursue on a given Sunday, they wouldn't feel bad about missing on a given Sunday. They go, they go more than once or twice a year, but to go every week, that's a little bit too much for some people. What about multiple services every week? Oh, now, now you're beginning to ask too much, of course. No way that they would think about going more often than just once a week. What about those who go to church every time the doors are open, so to speak. Sunday morning, Bible study and worship, Sunday evening worship, Wednesday night Bible study, and other occasions as they arise that allow for assembling together with us. What about that? People would say, no way, that's too extreme. That's extreme. If you think I should go every time the church doors are open, that's just sort of an extreme form of religion. That's fanatical, in fact. Well, apparently the Jerusalem Christians did that. Isn't that right? Doesn't it seem like that was their practice? Again, we got to stress, their practice was like God wanted it to be. We know that because the inspired apostles were right there involved with them in that process. And so the world would say, that's extreme. But God would say, that's expected. 
That's the way it ought to be. And so these first Christians, by worldly standards, would have been considered extreme, but by God's standards, that's the way it ought to be. These Christians just gave too much of their money. They gave too much. You know, it wasn't just their loose pocket change that they gave. Some people are prone to do that. In fact, it wasn't even just 10 or $20 of their money, which would have represented a little more than 1 or 2% of their income. Uh, in fact, it wasn't even a tithe. You remember the Old Testament tithe was 10%. The Jews under the Old Testament law of Moses were expected to give 10%. But these people didn't limit themselves just to that tithe or 10%. What did they give? Well, in verse 45 there of Acts chapter 2, it says they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. They were even selling their physical property in order to be able to contribute to what was going on there among the Christians in Jerusalem. And this wasn't just a one-time occurrence later in chapter 4. It says, beginning verse 34, Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made to every man according as he had need. And so they were even selling their lands and their houses in order to be able to contribute to the activities of the church in the city of Jerusalem. Now granted, there was an extraordinary need at that time. But when you contrast that sort of generosity of those first Christians with what statistically we are told concerning contributions to religious causes today, do you know that statistically among Protestant people in the United States that, that on average those involved in so-called Protestant religion in the United States they give on average... 2.3% of their income to religious causes. Now, only 2.3%, that makes a tithe seem rather extreme, doesn't it? But these people weren't even content with just a tithe. These Christians, look at what they did. Sold their lands and houses to contribute. And so the question is, what about us? How would we stack up in comparison to them when they were that generous in their giving? The world would say, those people were just fanatical. They were extreme. They were overboard in their giving. Well, again, maybe that's the way the world would measure it. But if we read the account in Acts, it seems to be that's the way God wanted it. And that was expected. And that's what they did. And they're commended for it. What else could we say? Now, what we're trying, what we're trying to stress is the notion of extreme means overboard, way too much, fanatical, doing more than could be expected or even uh, demanded. These early Christians did. And by worldly estimations today, they would have been considered extreme. What other kind of extremes did they do? Well, I think most people would say they preached too pointedly. Their message was too sharp. They were just too strong with the words that they had to say. You know... Most of us are uh, uh, appreciative of first impressions. We know the importance of first impressions. You want to make a good first impression. You want to put your best foot forward, so to speak. Well, what was the first impression that you got from these people when you think about the teaching and preaching they did? Well, we can go back to the very first sermon that was preached in, uh, among these Christians. Now, this was the first sermon. People are going to react to it. They're going to become Christians. This is the day of Pentecost, right? Acts chapter 2. So here's your first sermon preached to those who would become Christians in Jerusalem. 
Notice the gist of it. In Acts 2, verse 22, beginning, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and signs and or wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now, we want to make a good first impression. Here's our first sermon. What does he say? You, you Jews on Pentecost, you have taken the innocent Son of God and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Wow. You know what we, what we are told today? We, we need to make people feel good, you know? We need, we need sermons that, that make us feel good, uh, that sort of lift us up. And, and we really want little emphasis, very little, maybe no emphasis at all on the idea of sin. We want people to feel good when they hear the message of God. Here's the first sermon. And it stresses, you Jews on Pentecost, you have taken the Son of God and by wicked hands have crucified and slain Him. What was the result of that? In verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. When they heard this, they felt guilty. When they heard this, they felt bad. Because it did, in fact, pinpoint the sins that they were guilty of. They felt bad and guilty. And furthermore, they were told, Peter said to them, the rest of the apostles, men, when they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brother, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. They were told, you can't continue on this course. You've got to change. You can't just be what you are. You can't come as you are and stay as you are. You've got to change. You've got to repent of your sins. And so the, the, notice this very first sermon. It identified the sin. It, to, it made the people feel bad when they heard about their sin. It demanded that they change from their sin. And then, of course, specific information about obedience was included when, said, when he said, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. They were told exactly what they needed to do, what they had to do if they wanted to be free from the guilt of their sins. This was just the first sermon. But again, you've got to believe that it is what God wanted. A while back, I heard a, a preacher from our area who preached a sermon, and at the end of it, he said, I may have mentioned this to you before, at the end of this, he said, some of the preachers who are in the audience may not like to hear me say it this way, but by way of invitation, I just want to tell you, let go and let God. Well, what does that mean? I, I mean, I just shook my head like, what? I'm supposed to let go and let God? What does that mean? What am I supposed to do? And he never said, you know. And seemed rather proud that he could put it in those kind of terms. No, that's not gospel preaching. That's not what Peter did on Pentecost. He told him, here's your sin, and you need to change from it. And, and when he told them, you've sinned, you've killed Jesus, they felt bad about it. He said, repent, change your life, be baptized for the remission of sins. That's what their preaching was like. Now, some people say, that's, that's pretty pointed. Uh, you know, that's, that's pretty specific, you know. Maybe you shouldn't be so straightforward in your message. It didn't stop there either. When we get over into chapter 3, Peter was preaching again. He said, Brethren, I, I know or wot that through ignorance you did it, as did also your rulers. But repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Notice there's that word repent again. You've got to change. You can't just stay where you are. And you might notice also from those verses that he's saying, ignorance is no excuse before God. You've got to know and do what is right. Today, the message 
that we are given, or the, the feedback we're given, the, the notion that is suggested to us is tone it down. Tone it down. Water it down, even. Don't talk so much about things people don't like to hear about. Don't talk about moral issues like drinking or dancing or modesty. Don't talk about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Don't talk about homosexuality. You know, people might be offended with that message. And you might, and some people might be turned away if you preach like that. Uh, make it light. Make it easy to hear. Well, what about this? That's not the way the apostles preached, was it? Uh, people might think we're extreme if we follow that advice that we just mentioned, but we'll be following the example of the early Christians, these extreme Christians, when we preach the whole counsel of God. That whole counsel of God included such things as Acts 4, verse 12, when they said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name other than the name of Jesus under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. You know, we're not supposed to say that today either, are we? Because when we say that salvation is only available through Christ Jesus, do you realize that we have therefore excluded the majority of the world's religion from salvation? This excludes Jews who don't believe in Jesus. This excludes the Muslims who don't believe that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. This excludes large parts of the Eastern world who, who practice Buddhism or Hinduism. There's only salvation in Jesus, but even that is considered to be a, an extreme position if we teach it. But that's what the apostles did. That's what these first Christians did. And we repeat once more that since that's the way they did it, that's the way God wants it done. And our question is, are we like them? Are we willing to preach a pointed message that people need to hear? Finally, let me suggest to you that they wouldn't compromise. They would not compromise. That's really not surprising. It's not surprising, rather, that, that the kind of preaching we were just describing was met with some very stringent opposition. In Acts chapter 4, verse 18, the Jewish council called them. We always uh, remind ourselves as we read through this that that's the same council that just a few weeks earlier had caused Jesus to be crucified on the cross of Calvary. That's, these are the same guys, exactly the same guys. And the Jewish council called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it be right in the eyes of God or in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. And they spake the word of God with boldness. Notice, the Jewish council basically gave them a cease and desist order. You stop doing this. And I mean right now, you stop talking about Jesus. Uh, their response to that is, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now, actually, I, I think that's right. I mean, logically right. If you had seen the resurrected Jesus, then don't you think that you would have been with Peter and John and said, we can't be still. We've got to talk about the things that we have seen and heard. And so they were going to talk about it. If you'd seen that with your own eyes, wouldn't you say the same thing? I've got to talk about the things that I have seen and heard. And so they were threatened and sent away. But notice, they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They did not stop. They would not compromise. They didn't say, well, okay, if it's offensive to you, we'll back down. If you don't like to hear it, we'll go away. 
they continued to boldly proclaim the message of God. Just shortly thereafter, they were called back again before the council. And the council said, did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? Now, we told you, we told you to stop preaching about Jesus. And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then said Peter and the other apostles, then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. There's that famous quote that we so often reference. But it was, it was issued, that famous quote was issued in response to the, the charge, you must stop. We have told you to stop. Well, what about us? What about today? We are not commanded to stop preaching about Jesus. At least not yet. That day may be coming. When we are commanded to stop talking about Jesus. We have not been told that yet. But there's plenty of societal pressure on us to stop preaching the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. And you'd have to say, really, that the vast majority of the religious world has compromised. They have stepped back. For instance, this subject that we're going to be studying at our community Bible study this week on homosexuality. Really, it's amazing to see how many different religious denominations have backed off and said, okay, okay, under these pressures, we will agree it's, that homosexuality is okay. You can practice it. You can practice it openly. We'll even, we'll even appoint ministers and clergy who are openly practicing homosexuals. They've completely compromised on, on that matter altogether. How are we going to react? If we continue to take the Bible line on moral issues like that, we're going to be considered extreme. But in doing so, we'll be taking the position that the earliest Christians did. They did not compromise their teaching, even under strict pressure. And when the persecution began, when even physical persecution began, they didn't back down. Acts 5 continues, verse 40, When they called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. So now the physical persecution against them began, and there was great pressure for them to stop. They were beaten, and yet they rejoiced that they could take a position in defense of Jesus and his gospel, and they did not cease. Well, what kind of terminology would you attach? What descriptives would you use concerning these Christians? Well, we've said certainly they were extreme. They were truly, I guess you could use the word diehards. They were real diehards to their cause. Do you think they did too much? you think maybe they were a little bit overboard? You think maybe they should have moderated their message a little, toned it down, made it a little softer? Well, of course, our answer to that is absolutely not. We know that they were doing the right thing. And so the question is, what about us? Will we compromise or will we continue to stand strong for the truth of God's Word? What about these first Christians? I would say, by all estimation, it's fair to call them extreme Christians. Extreme as the world would judge them, but not as God would. Uh, people would say they went to church too much. But we don't think they did, do we? People would say they gave too much of their money. But we'd say they were exemplary in that, in their generosity. People would say their message was too hard, but we know it was right on. It was an inspired message. People would say they probably should have compromised and 
and, and moderated a little on their... No, they did the right thing. They were extreme as the world measures, but they were right as God measures. Were these people... You think they were crazy? You think they were insane? Uh, again, the world might think so. E- even some Christians might have thought so back in that day. Certainly, some Christians today would say so. But the Apostle Paul explained the mindset that was behind all of the kind of things we've been describing this morning. Notice what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning verse 12. He said, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. That, By the way, that phrase, if we are beside ourselves, you know what we'd put in there? If we're crazy, if you think we're insane, if we're beside ourselves, it is for God. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul said, if you think we're crazy, we're doing it because of God and because of the love of Christ and the fact that he died for all. And we understand that we should not live for ourselves anymore, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Let's be extreme Christians. That's what God wants. We need to be extreme in our religious belief and practice. There's nothing wrong with that. It's right. It's the way it should be. I hope that we can all be encouraged as we remember those first Christians. What's your situation this morning? Are you right with God? Are you a Christian yet? Uh, If you've never obeyed the gospel plan of salvation, you need to do that. But understand there's a cost associated with it. If you will obey the gospel, you'll have forgiveness of past sins. You'll be brought into a, a relationship with God. You'll have the hope of heaven and eternity. But it will require you to take some extreme action. Will you do that? Uh, the benefits are great. The obligations are certain, but the benefits are great. Will you become a Christian today upon hearing? We believe, repent, confess, and be baptized for the remission of sins. If you're a Christian already, but you feel that you really haven't been stepping up and, and stepping out and letting your light shine as you should as a Christian, you haven't been right with the Lord, we urge you to come back uh, through repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing.